FX Medicine Live will be at Tammy Guest's Natrapreneur Experience from the 16th to the 17th of February 2019. For more information and to book your tickets, please go to tammyguest.com. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is Narelle Henschel, who holds a Bachelor of Health Science in Naturopathy and has a private practice called Your Remedy, based in Crow's Nest, Sydney. Narelle graduated as ducks of her year in 2015 with a Bachelor of Health Science in Naturopathy. Since then, she's been in clinical practice in Crow's Nest with a special focus on helping people to sleep better. She's passionate about patient education and health awareness and focuses her treatments on diet and lifestyle modifications so that her clients attain their best possible level of wellness and vitality. Narelle has a special interest in the areas of sustainable food as medicine, sleep disorders, digestive health issues and natural approaches to menopause. Welcome back to FX Medicine. Narelle, how are you? Very well, thank you, Andrew. Lovely to be back. And it is to be back to finish off our part two of the sleep series. Um, so, Narelle, I think, why don't we just jump straight into it? Can we just recap on your first podcast, which was about sleep hygiene? Can you take yes. us through the major points first? Okay, certainly. So, um, we were talking about uh, sleep hygiene, which is all the um, things you do to help yourself, you know, give yourself the best chance of sleep. So, we spoke about the effects of alcohol, caffeine, uh, the environment that you sleep in, how warm your room is, how much noise there is, um, the effects of other medications and that as well. So uh, those are sort of, you know, the the core things that you need to, to have sleep. We also spend a bit of time talking about the very prevalent uh, thing these days is the amount of screen time we all have yes. you know, and the the knowledge that we're getting now about how it does impact our sleep. Can I just ask one question to flow over from that? And that is, you know, I'm just imagining this, you, you know, you have lovely crisp sheets to get into bed. There's nothing better than getting into a, a, a bed where the sheets have just been washed and they're nice and crisp and clean. You hop into bed and then you get that weird, oh, there's a fold in my pyjama leg. <laughs> you know, or my pajama leg isn't quite down near my ankle. That that just, you know, you it's not uncomfortable. It's just this weird feeling of it's not right. What is that? Are we talking like a snip here? <laughs> like, what's going on? How do you overcome that? How do you take people through that so they actually drift off into sleep rather than concentrating on those weird creases in their pajamas? <laughs> Um, well, no one's ever actually asked me about weird <laughs> creases in their pyjamas until now, but, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting question and it would probably suggest that their, their, brain's, their brain's alert and they're feeling quite stimulated because if you're in that point where you're going down into getting ready for sleep, you're sort of not as sensitive to all that kind of stimuli. So I would sort of be looking at are they actually ready to go to bed yet mm, yeah you know are they in that you know is their sleep drive high enough to get them to sleep right or you know do they need a new set of pajamas <laughs> 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 so 
So, um, yeah, it would be about making sure that they do whatever they need to do to feel comfortable, Yeah, you know, when they get into bed because that's a big part of it, you know, you need to be, yeah. I guess along that line, you know, the, the, the other thing I've done is, you know, I've gotten into bed and you say, okay, you know, relax. And then you feel yourself, yeah, okay, I'm relaxed. And then you go, no, I'm not. I'm actually quite tense. And you have to physically or consciously be aware of, even if you retense a muscle and then relax it, you know, the old meditation, mindfulness yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. And it's amazing how many times I've gotten into bed and thought I was relaxed, but I wasn't. And again, that's a uh, that's a common thing that I get um, told by my um, patients as well. That they, as soon as they get into bed, it's like ding. They kind of almost feel like they're really alert. And I have a theory that it often contributes because we haven't taken the time to process our day before we get into bed. So suddenly we're in bed and there's we're not trying to do anything. You know, make kids lunches or you know, catch up on Facebook or anything like that. And suddenly we have a chance, the brain kind of goes, oh, we need to process all this stuff that's gone on during the day. Yeah. And uh, so that's when we start, the brain starts engaging. And it can often be a nice thing to actually allocate some time earlier in the evening to kind of almost do that processing so that by the time you get to bed, you you know, you can almost tell your brain, oh, we've, we've got that sorted. We've got our to-do list for tomorrow. We know what we're, where we're heading and we don't have to think about it right now. So, so, so how, how much time do you say one should allocate for preparation for sleep, like getting, getting the lists ready, getting everything in their place, particularly if somebody's dog tired and they're just like, I just want to go to bed, but I know that when I do, my mind will play tricks on me and keep me awake. Yeah. That's a really good question and it does vary, but I like to say at a minimum, people should be trying to do a bit of a wind-down process at least half an hour before they want to go to bed and go to sleep. Mm. But an hour is a good idea. So it can start off with simple things like an hour before, just making sure you're not, you know, you're getting off the laptop, you're getting off your iPhone, all that sort of stuff. You're dimming the lights in your house to sort of start to get that melatonin production happening and um, calm everything down. And then you sort of, you know, you might be doing a bit of reading, you might, choose to journal or even just do a to-do list. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, I've got a journal and it becomes this big, huge, you know. War and peace saga. <laughs> yeah, or, or I've got to do it right. Or, But it can be just as simple as writing a to-do list of what, you know, what you want to start with tomorrow right. so that you've got it out of your head and it's on a bit of paper. So today we're going to be talking mostly about sleep therapy and, of course, that means intervention. Yeah. Um, so when we're talking about interventions, do you always wait until you've tried every bit of sleep hygiene measure first or do you sometimes go you know what you're in a spot let's see if we can give you something to help you sleep now while we're doing the sleep hygiene measures yes um i'd be going with the second one because often what is happening if people aren't sleeping well they're they're tired they're irritable they're you know their anxiety is often you know higher than it normally would be and you need you want to give them something to kind of break that and get the motivation because a lot of the sleep hygiene um, interventions are about making lifestyle changes and that normally requires a bit of motivation and discipline yeah are two things that are very hard to um, do when you haven't had enough sleep yeah so if you can get someone actually sleeping 
a little bit better and um, then they're more motivated to make the changes, the, the sleep hygiene changes. So I would sort of start with, you know, doing, you know, picking a couple of, after you've done a very detailed case history, as you always do with any uh, client that you're seeing, um, I would look at, okay, well, what for that person is a couple of key sleep hygiene things to do? I mean, there's no point telling someone to not drink alcohol if they don't drink alcohol anyway. Mm. So um, you really want to target that, and that's what... Um, the research has shown with sleep hygiene that giving someone a handout of 10 or 12 standard sleep hygiene things isn't as effective as saying, listen, Andrew, if if you do this and this, let's try these two things for the next week and, um, you know, then we'll see how we go from there. So it's really about, as with anything, tailoring the you know, the intervention to the individual. Yeah. So situation. I'm, I'm going to pick on you now. So over your yep. years of practice, do you find that you've gotten better at picking the appropriate ones to focus on? Uh, I think so, because you get better at taking case histories. Right. The more you do of, you know, and then if you're working in an area a lot, you do, um, you know, you have a sort of a knowledge of the, the questions and the flow and what might lead to one thing to sort of, because sleep is often, um, in the case of, I mean, most of the people I see have secondary insomnia, so not the primary insomnia, which is a lot more challenging, um, and often is going to a referral to, you know, a sleep clinic or, or someone else yep. to, to help with that. Um, but that's, yeah, that's just all about making sure, you know, you really do dig into their case history and, uh, yeah, elicit what what's going on for them what's causing it you know is it caused because they're stressed because they're very anxious um because they've got a food allergy um or is it a side effect of medication that they're on for something else yeah so, yeah um so we look at you know all those kind of things now that that's an interesting one to try and tease out a food intolerance how do you how do you then decide that you're going to go down that track of food intolerances? Is there a, a differential signal that you key into that you go, oh, hang on, what's happening here? Like the normal things, you know, the bloating, the tiredness, the, the, the dark circles under the eyes, that sort of quote-unquote allergic type person? Or do you tend to um, just sort of find it as a, way, as a matter of course? Um, certainly the allergic type person, the dark circles, if there's any kind of sinus congestion or those kind of signals, you might um, look at if there's, you know, something else going on with that. But um, also I often get people or regularly get people to do a uh, food diary as part of the um, the consultation. Yep. So we sort of look at, you know, are there things that, you know, every time they have uh, something that's got MSG in it, they don't sleep well that night or, you know, certain kinds of foods that they're having at night and you go, oh, is that causing it? So you can kind of, you know, go, okay, let's remove that for a bit and see how the sleep goes. So. Right, right. And, of course, I guess taking a food diary would twig you, twig your attention to things that aren't just happening that day but might be happening two, three days after you intake some and certain food. That's a really good point because when it's, um, you know, obviously anaphylaxis happens immediately and mm. someone's going to know that that's an issue for them before they come and see me. Well, that's, that's an allergy. Yeah. 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 And um, 
but any intolerance will show up, you know, 48, 72 hours later, potentially. And it can be stuff that's kind of low grade. Um, things like if someone's intolerant to like salicylites, might be just more that they're having too much of a thing yes. rather than that they're actually can't thing. have any of those foods. Yes. They might be just, you know, going crazy on the coconut oil and the avocados and that's not the, the best thing for, for them to Yes, thank you for putting in that salient point. There's so many people, practitioners included, who think that, and I know I'm getting off track here, but just they they seem to take some notion into their mind and say that is all. For instance, the no FODMAP diet rather than the low FODMAP diet. (laughs) Um, So back on track, Andrew. Um, (laughs) And and I guess this one also encompasses sleep hygiene. But, you know, we're at the end of winter now in Australia. Little better than jumping into a warm, snuggly bed. But then I've often found that, ah, you know, it's gotten too hot. And I kick the sheets off and then it gets too cold and sort of, you know, then I've got my foot hanging out and stuff like that. Whereas my wife needs a furnace to get to sleep. (laughs) Um, You know, so the blankets are piled on her. But, you know, strangely enough, there's this flip that we're having with Lee going through her menopausal years, which is very interesting, I find. Um, But why such a difference between the sexes in their need for a certain temperature to drift off to sleep? And then how do you work in the adjustment, you know, the natural adjustment of a decrease in body temperature during particularly the early hours of the morning? What happens there? How do you, how do you accommodate that? Well, it's, it's not uncommon, you know, uh, for, you know, bed buddies, bed partners to have different kind of uh, temperatures and men and women's metabolic rates are different anyway. So that explains part of the men tend to run at a slightly warmer temperature. Their metabolic rates are higher generally, all things being well, and women's are a little bit slower. Women can also be a little more prone than men to have issues with their thyroid as well. So that sort of affects uh, temperature and feelings of, of cold. But as you say, that flips as women go through perimenopause transition and, you know, the, the night sweats and changes in body temperature. As well, you can have things where the, um, the weather is, as well just, you know, influences if for whatever reason it doesn't cool down. You know, I've been, I think one night in summer here in Sydney, uh, this summer we had one where it actually, the temperature increased over the night, which was really unusual. And it was like, because you normally expect a bit of relief early in the morning, it's cooled down a bit. <laughs> great, I'll go into a deeper sleep, but it actually got warmer. So you do have those sort of, you know, environmental changes. The best way to kind of deal with that is to have the ability to be able to easily kind of add more layers or take layers off without sort of, you know, a lot of times people sleep with just a doona and sheet yep. and, um, and an electric blanket, say, in winter. And that can be really hard to sort of, you know, get yourself to that comfort level if you don't sort of have a couple of layers that you can, you know, kick off, pull back on when it gets a bit cooler and stuff like that. Mm. And uh, I believe for um, the male-female thing, there's actually doonas you can buy that are sort of heavier on one side for the female and lighter on the male. 
yeah, and, so. and then you put it on the wrong way. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Just, just to tease your partner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, oh dear. <laughs> you might be sleeping in the doghouse. And <laughs> I could imagine Lee doing that just for a giggle. <laughs> so, what about nutrients? You know, like there's, I, I'm thinking of the hero of relaxation nutrients, and that's magnesium. How yep. beneficial do you find this? Given, I think, that, I mean, even, what is it, um, Australian Institutes of Health and Wellness, H, uh, Wellness, I, that's the government department, AIHW, um, speaks of magnesium deficiency being highly prevalent in today's society where, quote, unquote, we all have access to good food, unquote. We're not eating it. Australia is not eating a good diet. So, well, no, and we don't like our leafy greens enough, I think, mm. is part of it. But the other side for that is actually a, a bigger about soil quality and that is that our soils around the world are magnesium depleted in a lot of cases. Mm. So we may be, you know, you know, even those of us who are eating a very good diet, but we may be getting 30 to 50% less than someone, you know, 100 years ago yeah. eating those same foods. So it is a challenge and um, I think... You know, magnesium is one of those nutrients that is very easy to not have have enough, you know, through the diet um, sources. And it's certainly the core, foundational core of a nutrient prescription for insomnia mm. um, because it's involved in the manufacture of melatonin um, needed for both the SAMe and the serotonin conversion through to melatonin. Mm-hmm. Um, having uh, not just your baseline magnesium, but having good levels of magnesium also helps your melatonin stay around longer. Uh-huh. So, so it keeps. So if you sort of someone in that early morning awakening thing, that can be something that magnesium can really help because it can help keep the melatonin um, stronger for longer. As I say, yeah. Um, it also um, some research seems to suggest that uh, magnesium can bind to GABA receptors, so increasing that relaxation. And it's got the um, the muscle, you know, so if you're sort of tense and tight, yeah. it's well known, yeah. you know, magnesium. And, uh, well, calcium is the other nutrient that you want to make sure is, you know, in a sleep prescription. So, yes, magnesium is definitely one of the, the big ones there. So, yeah, definitely. Do you uh, adhere to this two-to-one calcium-to-magnesium ratio? Um, I think it is important because nutrients, when you're getting... Uh, in terms of nutrients as a whole, as a general mm. philosophy, because you, the ratio that are found in foods and that, you know, you would assume evolutionary is an ideal way for us to consume nutrients and uh, make sure then we're not knocking one thing out of balance by having, you know, mega amounts of, of another one. Yeah, so. but see, I'm, I've never found a two-to-one calcium-magnesium ratio in any food. Not that I've looked exhaustively, but the few that I've looked at, they're never that way. However, I haven't, I've never also assessed how you put that together in a diet. Um, so you don't just eat one food all day. You tend to put different food groups together. So I've never yeah. also assessed that as well. And it's a complex thing, nutrient balance. And that's why, you know, a dietary prescription is often going to, you know, is, is going to be the ideal if we had good soils and all that way to, you know, get our nutrients into our body because it's going to have that balance across the board. But, yeah. 
you know, I'm, I don't know where the, the two-to-one ratio kind of originated from. Probably be interesting to sort of mm. look back and see, see where that came to be. Well, so, in, um, intracellularly, yeah. um, it seems to, to, to be that. Um, yeah. At least in a resting state, but but you know there's elegant control mechanisms within our cell, you know the sodium potassium pumps, etc. So I I don't know I I'm, I'm undecided about that. It seems just seems to be funny that you know we want it in a tablet, and I think really. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> get and it from look, food. a lot of formulations that you get don't sort of have some have that ratio, but a lot don't actually have that ratio yeah. either. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's you know interesting that those companies may yet may not sort of you know put as much emphasis on that kind of old old school rule yeah. uh, that that seems to yeah, yeah be around there. So what about forms of magnesium? Do you prefer one over the other? Like I know that, you know, the German research, for instance, favours magnesium citrate and that has some, some certain benefits. You know, there's in Australia, the magnesium bis, bisglycinate or diglycinate seems to be the, the hero one, you know, largely because of commercial interest telling you it is. Um, but it'd be just re- be really interesting if somebody's actually done, for instance, you have actually looked at the, how it responds how the administration of these nutrients um, cause response in your patients. What do you prefer? Um, well, I have used both and I have found both to be effective. Mm. So um, I, you know, I think they're both forms that are really well absorbed generally. So, you know, absorption is a problem for a lot of people. So to give them anything that's going to absorb it, and if there's someone that's quite low in magnesium anyway, I think either of those forms are going to give them some benefit. So I haven't sort of noticed one more than the other. Mm-hmm. I would probably be using more of the, um, like the amino acid chelates and the bogeisenates, just because a lot of the um, products actually have that as a formulation. Right. Thing. Whereas the, the citrates tend to be on their own yes. and often you're prescribing uh, magnesium in a formulation with other, you know, nutrients that support it. For example, your B group vitamins yep. and that. Just on that line, um, I've had one lady in my whole career who said that this infinitesimal amount, I think it was something like three milligrams or 1.6 milligrams of B6 kept her up at night. She swore black and blue that that's what it was. Of course, it was in a multi. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, yeah, but anyway, that was, that was her edict, oh, whatever. Um, how big an issue do you find this B6 hyper alertness at night thing to be? Do you think it's only with large doses or is it certain types of patients? Look, it's probably certain types of patients more so than others. And I'm sure it's probably, I haven't looked into it, but I'm sure it's probably to do with, you know, genetic variability and certain SNPs and yeah. um, would even be down to like liver function and uh, differences in that that would have it. But I ah, do know point. that some people don't react well to B6 or B vitamins in general in the evening. Ah, okay. Um, it does can tend to stimulate. So I tend to, I suppose, err on the side of caution in prescribing um, and doing formulations of B vitamins sort of in the day. And then, a, you know, if you're after a magnesium for night, looking at one that didn't have the B vitamins in it. Um, yeah. 
for a, a nighttime one. But then you've got people who can, you know, you know, have quite large doses of B vitamins at night. It doesn't affect them. Mm. It's like the people who can have, you know, an espresso after dinner, double shot, and you know, say they sleep like a log. Yeah. So yeah. it's um, yeah, it really is. I think it's probably down to genetics and how their their body metabolizes yeah. different things. So uh, yeah, of course. Um, like I guess my sort of idea of it would be to lessen the B vitamins and not necessarily be so hell-bent on avoidance. Um, and I guess my thinking there is because, hey, evening meal's got B vitamins in it, right? Um, yeah. So, but what I'm not talking about is these 50, 100 milligrams. You know, I, I agree with you that we should avoid them <laughs> at night. Just, I, I just think it's easier. You know, it may or may not affect them, but it's just easier to say, look, take this sort of thing in the morning because it's higher in the bees. But at night, take a, you know, if it's a multi, I'm not worried. But except for this one lady, she swore black yeah. and blue. Mm. And, I mean, you will get outliers, you know, amongst if you're working with enough people, you, you find people who have, you know, sort of reactions. You go, wow, I've never seen that before. Um, mm. So, but and then there are the the more common ones. But yeah, I mean, as you say, there's B vitamins in food, and a multi is probably not so much of an issue, but certainly a large dose. Yeah, yeah. I, I generally would not be recommending people. And yeah, other nutrients? What's or or nutraceuticals? Is there anything useful that you find? Um, the other one I'm really liking at the moment is uh, glycine. Ah. Um, I find that it really helps people who aren't getting that restorative sleep. Like they might be sleeping, but then they're the type of person, oh, I just wake up and I feel fatigued. I don't feel like I've slept well. Um, and it actually, when I did some research on it, it increases growth hormone release, which is, you know, at night that's um, one of the things that helps repair and regenerate. Um and it also has a bit of a interaction with your circadian rhythm as well. Right. It influences some of the genes and that um, and works with serotonin, which you need a little bit of serotonin for sleep, not too much, otherwise you'll be very stimulated, but a little bit helps uh, with sleep. So, yeah, getting some quite good results with that kind of um, person that's feeling really fatigued in the morning. Of course, there's many other reasons why you can, you know, not not feel refreshed and, and that if you've got adrenal stuff going on as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that can be uh, a nice... And it actually helps people go off to sleep, um, yeah, faster than they normally would as well. So. What, what about adenosine? Have you ever used that? I, 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 I have used adenosine. Yeah. And I love the theory of adenosine, but... I haven't seen the clinical results and that may be um, – and also the uh, a lot of the formulations, they don't have a very good taste to them. Right. Um, so compliance can be a little bit of an issue. But I also know other people who have found it really good. Mm. So, you know, it's it's just that sort of variability um, with – with different things. I um, don't know how to tell them apart though. I, like I, I do, like you, I've had a couple of people that found a wow effect and it was really quite marked for them. They, yeah. they, they found, they felt quite drowsy and, and very quickly too. Like we're talking a half an hour. Um, but it didn't work on all patients at all. 
No, and I think, well, adenosine, what it's um, doing is increasing that sleep drive because that's what should happen during the day as we go along if we don't sabotage it is that your adenosine's building up in the brain and it reaches that point where you just, you start to feel really sleepy and that's your maximal sleep drive because you've been awake. The longer you're awake and if you're not having caffeine, the more adenosine should be building up. So um, in the people who for whatever reason, don't get that build-up. I think adenosine can be really useful to help get that sleep drive happening. So yeah, it would be interesting to look at the, the data and, and, you know, which sort of patient group this might suit better. I don't know. I've never looked into it. <laughs> I, think, I think, again, it's, it's that person who maybe doesn't necessarily feel as sleepy. It might help. The interesting, I'm starting to sort of look a bit more at uh, chronotypes and that kind of thing where people have these delayed sleep phase, mm. you know, kind of thing. So it may be useful in that in kind of tricking the brain to think that it's the sleep drive is higher if they would normally need another couple of hours to get to that point yep. for whatever reason. So Anything else? Any other, like, I've never used SAMI. It wasn't around in my day. <laughs> so I've never I, used I SAMI for sleep. Have you found that useful? I tend to use it as a – it might be something I'd have in the back of my mind for a certain kind of um, – person with sleep if it was if there was some a depression picture right um methylation kind of things going on i would consider it um sammy can be sort of an expensive one yeah uh, in terms of cost so it's not normally the but it is can be really effective but it's not the first one i would probably jump into in terms of yeah a sleep prescription and now on Um, to my favorite intervention herbs Ah, uh, yes. Well, it's so, one of my favourite hmm, ones. How well, long have you so. got? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in terms of the herbal prescription, I suppose a, um, a way I look at it is to look at a day and a nighttime prescription. Uh-huh. So, some kind of actions that I'd be looking at for daytime kind of um, things is your nervines, your adaptogens, adrenal tonics, um, anxiolytics as well in terms of those kind of herbs. So to sort of try and support people's energy and nervous system to have that calming effect but not sedating effect during the day. And also I prefer not to do anything that's too stimulating herbally during the day because that can kind of rev people up and then it's sort of almost harder to get them to come back down for relaxation and so recovery even, mode. even though they're tired, you know how people, they want to hit? Do you, do you sort of say, hey, back off a bit? You know, we really need to prepare you for this and even you out rather than, you know, this stimulate, you know, the old, what is it, the 70s thing of taking an upper then a downer. Um, we need to even out that sort of biphasic approach. That's a really wishy-washy way of saying it. but My feeling is to try and, you know, build up the energy with, but not sort of give someone an artificial, not, not that herbs really, you know, so full on in no. terms of it's certainly not like taking an upper or so I would be led to believe. Um, but, yeah, to sort of look at tonifying the nervous system and, and the adapted, you know, gentle adaptogens to get that, release that, you know, adaptation energy 
and help them build up with, you know, diet and, and all that kind of things as well so that they maintain energy. And some of that is also looking at, and I'm increasingly finding this with sleep, is there's correlations between blood sugar and insulin right. imbalances. Right. Um, and so that whole metabolic aspect of being imbalanced metabolically and obviously because that's driving your energy cycles, one of the, the things that's driving energy cycles. So to try and get people to have, you know, that nice, smooth, good glycemic control throughout the day and not be sort of spiking up and down um, and, you know, running on stimulants is a sort of the key part of that. So um, things that I like to use during the day are rhodiola, um, as the yeah, HPA axis regulator and, and, and adaptogen, mm-hmm. and withania, especially if they're sort of really debilitated and low in energy and got a bit of anxiety. And withania is a nice one to carry into the Beautiful. nighttime prescription as well. So you've sort of got a bit of a continuity through there as well um, because it's got that slight sedating aspect to it not strongly it's very slight so yeah but it's not going to stimulate someone at night and um of course oats is lovely as well during ah, the day for the, the, the oft forgotten oats ah the good old oats yes, yes it's, it's a lovely one it's not a fast working one i tend to find it's you know more the months have someone on that for a month but yeah. it really starts to kind of yeah build up and do some nice things to the nervous system in terms of balancing it out. So, what about um, what about though? You know things like Korean ginseng, the Panax ginseng, which you know most people, most natural natural health practitioners would term it a stimulating ginseng. But even Korean ginseng, like, admittedly, if you take a lot of it, like an idiot, like these ginseng abuse athletes, yeah. it's it's going to cause stimulatory effects. But a little bit. Do you find it's an, an issue? Like, or do you find that you just choose it in those people that are really debilitated? Um, yeah, and it's, it is about finding the right... I mean, traditionally um, in Asian cultures, that ginseng was prescribed for the older person mm. um, as, as a tonifying thing. And I think that's got a lot of value in terms of how to think about using that, um, you know, not necessarily going, you know, as you say, with the athletes, the hardcore, we're going to mega dose on, you know, Korean ginseng. <laughs> and the other one I might often use during the day is kava. Yes. Um, I find it's a, a really nice daytime prescription. It's not sedating. It can help people cope with better, be quite clear focused, especially if they've got a lot of stuff going on. They've got a lot of things they're juggling for work and, you know, multitasking kind of things that they have to do, it can be a nice one to, you know, help support the overwhelm and that as, as well. So, yes. And we yeah. can we can thank um, the research of um, Jerome Saras, Kerry Bone and Reg Lehman for getting Carver back onto the Australian market. Thank you, guys. Yeah, very <laughs> grateful for that. It's, it's certainly it would be, yeah, um, an absolute tragedy to not have access oh. to that. It, it, seriously, it would be one of my 20 herbs that I could not do. I could not open a clinic without. No way. It yeah. just, it works so well. And thank you, Jerome Saras, by the way, for showing that it, you know, it doesn't, at reasonable dosages, normal dosages, it doesn't have effects on, um, you know, things like um, reaction time and driving and machinery operating and things like that. 
Um, but I do take the salient point that if someone's really tired and you take something that's going to help relax them, that tiredness might prevail during the day for a while. Do you agree with that sort of thing? Oh, I think there is that, you know, there's that rebound sort of as people start to actually relax, um, you know, that's when you can actually feel tired. And in some ways that's a really good sign. It means mm. the nervous system's relaxing and it's saying, hey, I want e- some sleep. Exactly. I'm ready for it. Yeah. <laughs> Let me have it. So, um, yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, and so for night time, um, I suppose my some of my – if I was wanting to get someone who's having – problems going to sleep, I certainly would be looking at your California poppy, ah, yes. um, hops, yep. um, even though it's got a pretty strong taste mm. in a liquid, um, and of course the uh, valerian, so either valerian or I tend to use a lot of Mexican valerian yes. in my clinic, um, and I really love lemon balm, again, uh, an Melissa, old school yes. kind of, but I find it's, uh, it does work really well in nighttime uh, formulation. And it works really well as a tea. So, ah, nice. Um, yeah, it, it is a nice one um, to combine. And not to forget good old lavender as well um, is a nice relaxing one. And it's often used as essential oil yeah. uh, in the research. That's what a lot of stuff has been done on yeah. the research. But again, a little bit of lavender in a tea with you know mixed with lemon balm, maybe a little bit of valerian. Uh, some people would say valerian doesn't work so well <laughs> as a tea. tea. <laughs> but, but the classic one is like people very commonly say old bed socks, but if you get nice fresh valerian, yeah, okay, there's that background, let's say it's a base note, but you can get this real aromatic smell coming through. It's really lovely. Yeah, I actually don't mind it. Maybe mm. it's Maybe it's me. Uh, maybe I'm just used to taking a lot of herbs that sort of have different smells to it, but... Yeah, I don't find, especially if it's uh, mixed in with you know some other other herbs and and that um, I find it it can be quite a nice one. To, yeah, 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 get people off to sleep. So what about Valeriana officinalis, the European quote unquote of um, Valerian versus Mexican Valerian? Um, how do you compare their actions? The Mexican Valerian is a stronger, I would say, stronger sedative. It has a lot more of the um, one of the sedating principles. And there's a there, well, there's probably quite a few sedating principles in valerian that we don't even know about yet. But one that we do know about is uh, valpotriates. It's got um, yeah um, three or four times the amount roughly than your standard valerian. Of course, that's going to depend on growing conditions and all those kind of things, but. And as well, it doesn't seem to have the... um, Some people can get that paradoxical valerian reaction where it stimulates them. Um, And the Mexican valerian, it seems to be less likely to do that for some reason, and I'm not sure why that is. Um, But it seems to be safer in terms of of that um, reaction. So So if it's higher in the... I think the salient lesson is... If Mexican valerian is higher in the valipotriates and if you don't seem to get this this weird um, action side, side effect in some people of um, flipping and getting them hypersensitive, mm. forgive me, hyper-stimulated, um, um, yep. then we should stop blaming valipotriates for this hypersensitivity. <laughs> 
You know, we should look at the whole herbs action rather than one ingredient. This is my issue with standardization. It leads us down the wrong track. We start to reductionize, there's my word for the day, everything um, into one chemical component rather than the broad action um, yeah. of the, you know, the various constituents of a herb, which can be really complex. Oh, and they're, well, they're, they're so complex we don't even know the, the full, you know, what all the constituents in them do exactly. But mm. there's, you know, the other, you know, sedative principles in valerian is your valerianic acid and there's flavonoids as well that, um, you know, act on serotonin receptors that would also be feeding into the sedation process. So... It's, it isn't just the one um, constituent that's, yes. you know, going to be having that, um, that effect. That's so, right. This goes back to many years ago when the quote-unquote active of St. John's wort was the hypericin. And then, you know, three, five years later, oh, no, hang on, it was the hypericins. And then another three, five later, it was the hyperforin. And then it was this. And now when you look at the ZE117 extract, it's actually the scientists over in Germany, that um, the phytopharmaceutical company who make that, Zella, um, are actually questioning whether it's the flavonoids that might be having a major action, not necessarily the only, but a major effect of the antidepressant action. So I just think we are being so reductionist if we think that one quote-unquote hero compound is going to be the active of a herb rather than giving uh, the honour, if you like, the respect to the whole herb. And I think this is so important to grasp a hold of. Yeah, and I, it is a really important uh, concept. And I do come from that same stance as well, where I'm very much about the the whole herb and the, you know, and it can be like minor constituents supporting the, these, you know, sort of big guns constituents, so yep. to speak, in the thing. We, you know, and taking them away is going to change how how that herb and the traditional use, you know, and what it, what it can do. And it's it's a shame when herbs, I think, get put into a, a category, you know, St John's Wort is for depression because it's actually got a lot more to, to that herb than just for depression. Yeah. We can tend to just narrow our focus down on it. It's like saying valerian is just for sleep. It's actually a really great antispasmodic. That's right. Well. Yeah. So, and and likewise with kava, you know, th people yeah. think it's for anxiety. The research is really good, um, really compelling on anxiety, generalised anxiety disorder, but people think it's a sleep aid um, and they're really pigeonholing a beautiful herb that can help people. I guess... I'd really like to investigate also, do you use any of the quote-unquote old herbs? You know, the, the chamomiles, the blue vervain, the, the clary sage, um, um, jujube, um, yeah, zizifus, zizifus. Do you, do you use these herbs and, and what do you find their effect to be? Do you tend to use them in combination or is the hero out of this? Or? One that I'm getting some good results with is motherwort. Ah, um, yes, yes. Is a lovely one for uh, if there's that kind of palpitations, heart things, uh, with anxiety. It's it can just be a really nice addition to a formula. And of course, chamomile is, you know, it's known as the mother of 
the gut, but it's also, you know, the gut and the brain are connected. Yep. So yep. Um, it's a lovely one that you can certainly add to formulas, especially, you know, kids, you know, formulas, if there's a bit of restlessness going on, that with lemon balm is a is a nice one. Sisyphus as well has that nice aspect um, for menopausal or any kind of night sweats mm-hmm. can be quite helpful in that regard. Um, Hawthorne even as well, you know, again, for the cardiac antioxidant sort of yep. component as well, um, is can also help in a sleep formulation if someone's got that kind of, you know, hypertensive sort of aspect to it and help, you know, things relax and go into sleep. So it's, a uh, yeah, it can be nice. And, of course, I often find... Um, for perimenopausal women, um, your um, cohosh. Um, ah, yes, of course. Is it's not really sedative or that, but it's it sort of just it's helping support the the underlying cause of the sleep disturbances, regulating that you know estrogen, serotonin kind of curve, balancing that all out as well. So, yeah. Speaking about balancing, there's one more herb that I think I would get shot by Professor Mark Cohen if I didn't mention, and that's Tulsi, holy basil. Do you use that at yes. all? Um, I would tend to use it as a tea, that one. Uh-huh. So then, but it is available as a liquid yep. um, in Australia now, and um, I shall be probably experimenting it with more in a liquid thing, but I do use yeah it quite a bit as a tea. And it's one that, again, I like to give um, people that has a tea for the daytime to sort of just have that nice, you know, relaxation effect uh, through the day, get the nervous system, you know, balanced, relaxed, but, you know, not um, sedated during the day. Yes, yes. Beautiful other actions, though, with the immune system. I love that herb. What I find was funny was after um, Mark Cohen and I spoke and he, he glowed, he effused about uh, the uh, the actions, the wonderful actions of holy basil. It really got, it was really tickled his, his uh, funny bone about this. Um, <laughs> and I had a great conversation with it. It was so wonderful. But I immediately went out and purchased on eBay uh, two, <laughs> 200 seeds. They're minuscule, these seeds. Yeah. And I thought, I'm going to grow my holy basil because Mark Cohen said that there was this whole celebration about having the plant and, and even giving it as a gift. And so you could grow it, you could you could have it on your kitchen bench and you could give one as a gift to a, a friend or a birthday who might be in need of something. And so I thought, I'm going to do this. So I bought 200 seeds on eBay, cheapest chips, and I planted them and not one flowered. <laughs> not, I must try again this, this spring. <laughs> so if anybody's got some hints and tips out there about how to grow Tulsi, please let me know on FX Medicine. What Otherwise else? you won't have any friends. <laughs> no, that's right. What else have we, do we have uh, to so consider? Of course, the other one that I haven't um, mentioned, and it is one of my favourites, is passion flower. Oh, of um, course. Yeah, and that is just the the kind of the go-to. I sort of think of it as the people that have those circular thoughts that go around and they might go to bed and, you know, suddenly everything's there solving the problems of the world that haven't even happened yet and, you know, they're replaying what went on during the day. They're, you know, thinking about things that may or may not happen in the future. Um, and it is, yeah, a wonderful nervine and anxiolytic um, and just helps give a deeper sleep 
and yeah, targets anyone that's got that kind of yeah anxiety edge. And it's a nice one you can also use during the day, and you can use um, passion flower. It acts very quickly. So yeah, it's one that I'll often give as a simple. So that if people wake up during the night and the brain starts ticking around, they can just have a little top up, you know, at 2 a.m. in the morning and that might help them go back to sleep. Yeah. Um, and it goes, so it's a, it's a lovely one and it works quite nicely as a tea as well. I was speaking to a practitioner once. He, was, he used high-dose passion flower um, and I do believe it was for anxiety. Do, yeah. Have you ever had that experience? Yeah. Oh, look, there is. If you probably if you had someone who was kind of having, you know, a very acute attack, that would be a strategy you could look at. Um, I tend to sort of go on the lower end of dosing scales yep. as a personal thing, mm-hmm. and I have seen some people with passion flower for anxiety, and I'll often give people a range of a dose that they can use and sort of. It kind of gets them involved a little bit more in listening to their body as well, which is I like. But I might say you can take between this much and this much and start on the lower end and, you know, if you need to, a bit more. But And they'll often and often they find their doses on the lower end. But I had one lady that five drops of passion flower. So I don't know if that's placebo or well, no, not, but it's probably pretty cheap in terms of, you know, an effective. Yeah, look, yeah. I, I, used so, to, I used to think that, but now let's look at the evidence with Iberogast, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's drop dosages, guys. I, yeah. I really think we need to reassess our dosing and how people respond. And there's so many theories. You talk to different herbalists and naturopaths. Yes. And people, you know, some people advocating, you know, gross dosing, drop dosing, and then there's in between. So it's, um, yeah, it's an area that, yeah, it would be interesting to see what the research actually showed. But again, you're also dealing with, you know, individual variability of, you know, metabolisms and, you know, what other concurrent conditions they've got. So that's also going to affect that as well. So it's probably a case of, as we always get back to, of tailoring it um, for the person sitting right in front of you. Yes. Um, and, and looking at them. So. But, but I don't think we can dismiss drop dosages when, you know, we had the greats of herbal medicine in Australia like Dorothy Hall using drop dosages for decades. Yeah, and there's quite a few practitioners that just work on drop doses and get really amazing results. So mm. I think it's definitely there's something in it as well. So There's one aspect I must cover and that is fluid extracts. I remember... Um, it was a housemate before Lee and I got married. He used to live with us. And um, Tony, I, I, Tony had some issues sleeping and I remember giving him a herbal formula and he said, how, how could anybody drift off to sleep when you're lying in bed on your side with a winced face with this god-awful taste in your mouth? How do you get people over that taste issue of fluid extracts? To be honest, I actually don't have so much of a problem yeah. with um, with that. Some people will say, oh, it didn't taste great, but, you know, I know it, it's really helping me, so I... They get over kind it. Of, yeah, and I always say to them they can take it in a little bit of um, juice or that, but I think most people just um, take it straight, you know, like not diluted in water. So it's... And it's often... It's weird, but often the more they sort of take the liquid herbs, they kind of get to almost 
maybe not like is too strong a word, but they get used to that taste of that sort of plant yes. taste of of the uh, yeah the, the herbal extract. So it's yeah, it's not something I've had so much of a an issue with. And look, if there is someone like that, there are some um, tablet formulations yeah. that you can look at. I mean, the advantage of having the liquids is you can get a very personalised um, prescription, which you can't do with the tablets. Um, Narelle, what about uh, red flags? What do we need to be responsibly alert for to go, woo back, I'm not sure I want a treat here? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's one that um, people probably don't think sleep may not have so many red flags, but there are some key ones. So, of course, any kind of uncontrolled hypertension is always, you know, a referral back to uh, a GP for to look at management and further investigation. Yep. Um, again, if there's heart palpitations and stuff like that. A uh, big one is uh, snoring. If they're a regular snorer, I mean, people can snore if they've had a little bit too much alcohol, one-off kind of thing. But if it's a, a regular thing, and uh, especially if they're not getting refreshed sleep, um there's actually a kind of a questionnaire or a, a, a adaptation I use is the Epworth Sleep Scale, which was developed by an Australian, uh-huh. um, and it specifically looks at um, daytime fatigue. So if someone sort of gets, you know, a certain score on that, uh, you would I would sort of think, oh, that person may have sleep apnea uh, and should get assessment in a sleep clinic because that is something that can have uh, very serious consequences if it's not treated. If they were having episodes of fainting or blacking out, that would be another one. If they'd also, if their sleep, they weren't sleeping and a, you know, clinical investigation sort of revealed that there'd been some kind of concussion or head knock or car, you know, they'd been involved in a motor vehicle accident, I'd probably, I would be sending them back yes. for, to look at, you know, is there some kind of inflammation in the brain that's affecting sleep centres and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Of course, if they're falling asleep during the day, doing things that, you know, like just at their desk or they're kind of, you know, randomly doing that, kind of the narcolepsy kind of scenario, that should be. Um, and anything where there's indications of really, you know, severe anxiety, depression, any self-harm or a suspected you know, drug abuse mm, so that's advice. contributing to that. So, um, but certainly the one that's probably the the most um, one I would see is the snoring component, um, and making sure sleep apnea is not involved in that because that can be um, a real issue, especially if they were to go and self-prescribe some sleeping tablets. Um, right. And that because if their respiratory centre gets depressed, it can be, you know, it can result in death yes. ultimately if yes. someone's got that co-concurrently. So you certainly do. A lot of people think snoring is just annoying, but it is it is a symptom that should should be checked out and evaluated. Yes, sure. Yep. And so just a last quick question, Narelle. Where can practitioners get some really good resources around sleep, not just sleep hygiene, but sleep interventions as well or, or management? Okay. Um, there's not a huge amount kind of out there in one package. I sort of 
have gained mine. Um, there's a really great book about assessing different sort of sleep stuff by Carmel Harrington. I think it's called A Good Night's Sleep. But I can certainly uh, send you the, the details great. of that. Great. Yeah, we'll the put the link up on She's an Australian sleep researcher and scientist. Beautiful. And she um, has some really great uh, ideas for clinical questionnaires and things like that. Um, and the book is a really interesting book to read. And, um, yeah, I certainly got a lot of stuff out of that for a clinical kind of Excellent. Uh, scenario. Excellent. So, we, can, we can put that up on the FX Medicine website for yep. our listeners as well. So fxmedicine.com.au, just go there and you can um, search for the podcast and you can um, find the relevant um, research and uh, resources there for your use. The one thing I would just sort of really kind of point out is that try and think of the insomnia as a symptom rather than a cause. Of course, you're going to help manage them to get to sleep, but, you know, always look to dig further into why that uh, person is having sleep issues, which I'm sure all good, you know, health professionals would be doing that anyway. Yes, but your guidance here is really opening my eyes up we're so busy, we're so caught up in what we think we see in, in front of us that we might miss some real key issues that, you know, even if it's to alert us to say, oh, I'm not sure whether I want to treat this or whether you can delve further into a patient's case history to get more meaningful data to make a better prescription that will work better for them. So you've given me, let alone our listeners, you've given me some really great information in these last two podcasts to really learn from. So I really thank you for that, Narelle. My pleasure. It's uh, been great talking about sleep. It's one of my passions. So, yeah. It's one of my passions too. And, and I've got to say, <laughs> um, I, I certainly want to uh, swap that uh, lopsided doona around on my wife. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> Try that out oh, for no. a joke. <laughs> Apologies to your wife in advance from me. <laughs> Narelle Henschelay, thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Your your insight into sleep hygiene and sleep interventions has, has been invaluable. Thank you so much. My pleasure. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. FX Medicine has exciting developments for 2019. The first of which is a brand new podcast series hosted by Dr. Mark Donahue. Stay tuned for more updates.